We're going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word. Our passage today is Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away at the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. That was my robot voice. <laughs> Before I get going, I want to re-up on what Andrew said. I was out teaching a class on 2 Corinthians at Ecola Bible School this week. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul has a lot to say about his love for the community. And I thought, I thought about the fact that I am not naturally disposed to be a loving kind of person. And I don't naturally just sort of come to the table with this exorbitant amount of love. But God has given me a tremendous love for you and for this body. And I reflected on that every day of the week since we last met. So it's good to be here with you. What an ending to this gospel that Mackenzie just read. That's the end. That's the end of the gospel. Now, I know that your Bibles often will have verses 9 through 20. And I'll explain in a little bit why that longer ending is on there. But the, the gospel proper ends right there with that word afraid. And it's unsettling. It's really unsettling. There's no disciples around. There's no family. There's nobody. And if you could have somehow found Peter, wherever he's hiding at this point, you would not find him sitting there uh, truly loving the Lord his God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength or loving his neighbor as himself. You'd find Peter shaking and scared. Uh, he has just abandoned his closest neighbor, Jesus, to the cross. Mark's gospel reads differently than the way we generally understand how this story wraps up. This is not how it's supposed to end, is how I think we feel. There's more to the story. This isn't where it's supposed to end. Something else is going on here. What Mark is trying to do, I think, is very, very different than what we might expect. It's abrupt, and it's unsatisfying to us. He's not giving us the information that we want. We want to know more about, wait a minute, where's the proof of the resurrection? What's, what's the happy conclusion here? Where are the feel-good details that don't leave me hanging in that dark and strange place? Did Mark kind of just spill coffee on the last pages? 
Maybe he got distracted, you know, squirrel. He just didn't finish. He forgot, and then he got sidetracked, and then this is all we have left. Why does he cap it right there at verse 8? Well, first off, I think there's a beautiful sort of side lesson that we can glean here on what it is, that the, what the Bible is. Uh, sometimes we think, we think of it improperly. We think it's just sort of one story, and here's a couple different ways to tell it. But each writer is accomplishing a different kind of goal. There are different books, and there are different goals in each book. There's different ways that the Bible is trying to transform us. Some texts are waking us up to Jesus' kingship. That would be Matthew. Others are waking us up to something totally different. John really wants us to look at belief and see the Lamb of Godness in Jesus. Luke is looking differently and wanting us to see the deep humanity in Jesus. But what is Mark doing? Mark tells this story in a different way on purpose. And I think it's intending to transform us in a specific way. Will you follow? Will you become a true disciple? A man or a woman who becomes the gospel in this world, who becomes living proof of the resurrection. Mark's call to us is along those lines. Where are you at, really? Will you become evidence that Jesus was truly God or not? By now we're feeling more than ever that the power of Mark's gospel is not ultimately in what it tells us, but in what it asks of us. So to begin this morning, I want to step back one scene earlier than what Mackenzie read to sort of give us the context, and then we'll look at that last passage as well. So jump back to verse 1540, and we'll return to the very first question. What is it with this very dark and bleak and confusing end to the gospel, which should be a success story? This does not look like a success story, does it? Okay, so let's frame it up, starting in verse 40, and then we'll come to 16, 1 through 8. Here we go. This is right after Jesus has died, the, the skies were darkened, all of the disciples that Jesus has walked with through the entire story are literally gone. They're nowhere to be seen. Jesus is hanging alone, abandoned on the cross. Verse 40, there were some women watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, the Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Okay, so there's a group of women looking on. In Galilee, these were the women who had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. They're part of his team. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So Mark helps us to see this picture of Jesus hanging on a cross outside of the city wall, alone and abandoned. But there is this group of ladies that are tightly connected to Jesus who are watching at a distance. Why are they at a distance? They could, be, they could be there because of modesty. We're told that this crucifixion renders Jesus hanging naked on the cross. Perhaps they don't want to get right up close to his exposed nakedness, and so in modesty they stay back. Perhaps their reservation parallels Peter. 
He uses, Mark uses the same language here about them being at a distance. That's the same language Mark used to talk about how Peter followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Peter follows him into Jerusalem. Peter's the only one, but he does so at a distance. He's hanging back in a safe place. He wants to be with Jesus, but if he's right up with him, that might cost him too much, so he's hanging back. Perhaps that's what the ladies are hanging back for as well. We don't want to get necessarily tied in with him, but we do want to see what happens here. They're present, but the scenario is still pretty dark. They have not, for instance, confessed that he's the Son of God. They're still looking. They're still wondering. And the only person who has confessed it thus far is who? The Roman centurion. He sees Jesus breathe his last and says, oh man, this is truly the Son of God. Pick it up in verse 42 again. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. And so as the evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council or the Sanhedrin, this is the crew who just condemned Jesus to death. He's a member of that crew and he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God that's Mark going, wink, wink, uh-huh, uh-huh, good guy. He was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He went boldly with courage to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. This happened very quickly. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, well, if Jesus, is he really already dead? Centurion says he is. Verse 45. When Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph, and Joseph bought some linen cloth. He took the body down, he wrapped it in linen, and he placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Sink tomb, small little hole. You'd have to kind of duck down and get through. When I was, I got to go to Israel for some of my studies last February. We went to, there's a couple places they think the tomb might have been, but it's, it's cool. There's a small little opening. A guy like me can just barely fit through it. You know, too much pie. <laughs> but you can get down through it. It's very low ceiling. And then there's a little groove cut in front that there's a round stone that rolls in the groove right over it. Very interesting. This would be how they'd seal it up. Grave robbing was a problem then, and this was a way to help protect from that. Well, right off the bat in this, this little opening section, we have a very unexpected response from Joseph of Arimathea, don't we? I mean, he's part of the Sanhedrin that just condemned Jesus to death, but he's making the most interesting move here. This is not the first time that Mark has shown us an enemy of Christ who is actually brought on board with Jesus, if you will. And that brings right again to the fore for us as readers, as disciples today. It makes us ask, how am I going to respond? There isn't apparently a certain people group that always responds a certain way. Some of those whom should be uh, the most devout to Jesus will reject him. Others who are apparently his his sworn enemies will accept him. The, the playing field is leveled under the gospel. 
And Mark has shown us a couple of times where people who should not want to be with Jesus actually are. You might have noticed Joseph of Arimathea is the last of three similar responses that we've already seen throughout this gospel. You remember back in chapter 12, there were the teachers of the law that were coming and challenging Jesus, but one of them understood what he was saying. He grasped it, and Jesus looks at him and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And we as the readers were like, wow, that's unexpected response. I'm surprised the guy was on board with Jesus at that place. The second one was just last week in chapter 15 with the Roman centurion. I mean, this is the guy who's just taken part in literally the brutal murder of Jesus. You would expect him to stay the course, but the darkened sky and all of what's happening causes him to see the veil tears in half, and he says, whoa, I get it now. I'm done pretending whatever it was I was pretending before. This is truly the Son of God. That was Jesus' second enemy. Here's Joseph of Arimathea, the third, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, Mark calls him. And he does this burying of Jesus at his own expense, financially for sure. This was radical to be able to spend that money on that kind of grave, etc., etc. He goes to great expense, but it's even more radical in the sense that you don't really want to tie yourself in socially with the crucified guy. They would often just leave him hanging on the sticks of wood to let the crows pick at the carcass because that person had died the most disgusting and shameful death. You don't really want to have anything to do with it. He apparently does, and I think Mark then tells us what he asks of Pilate is extremely courageous. He walks up and says, can I, I mean, he doesn't say these words, but the gist of it is, I'm willing to be associated very tightly with that man on the cross to the point where I'd like to retrieve his body and then bury it properly. That's a big risk. What would motivate a guy to do this? Now, Pilate would ask the same question of, of Joseph, right? What would motivate a guy to want to bury that guy? And then the question is, is he really one of us in the Sanhedrin? Joseph goes at great risk to himself. But Mark tells us that this Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's his wink, wink. He's trying to give us a little window into his, whole, uh, his soul, and he says, you can see that this guy is genuinely looking. He's a seeker. He's seeking the kingdom of God. That's Mark's way to say this dude was legit, even though he doesn't maybe appear that way at first. He dares to ask Pilate. He goes boldly, as your NIV says. Three people, a, a Jewish religious elitist, a Roman centurion, and one of the Sanhedrin council members, and Mark takes special care to help us see how they respond very favorably to Jesus. Does he want you and I to see something there? Does he want us to see how even Jesus' greatest enemies can still be changed by his gospel, by his truth? And there's more than that as well. We've watched now. We've been in the story of Mark for well over a year. And if you can remember with me, some of those other stories of people who are just unexpected recipients of the gospel who respond favorably, people who should care less about Jesus or a Jewish Messiah, they're nonetheless drawn in by him. The Syrophoenician woman, 
the demon-possessed Gentile guy living in a tomb in Gennesaret. They're drawn to Jesus, and he heals them. Some of the outcasts and the low-class people seeking Jesus, and then he finds them, and he heals them. We've read about all of these wins, if you will, these great moments in Jesus' ministry that are encouraging to us, these positive responses to Jesus, and I think it warms my heart when I see that. That's really cool. I say, boy, that's awesome. They're, they're getting the gospel. They want to follow Jesus. But then Mark is always messing with us. Because who's always in the scene? If not in it, they're right behind the scene. They're the believers. They're Jesus' closest believers. The guys who believed in him so much that they changed the course of their life to follow him. They're always there. And how are they always responding? It's a mixed bag, sometimes very favorably, and other times not so much. If you remember the whole first eight chapters of Mark, we would characterize with the dull disciple motif. They're kind of consistently dull. They're not getting what he's saying. Jesus is always asking, are you guys still in the dark here? Do you not yet understand? Do you not have eyes to see or ears to hear or some of the language he uses? And it's almost like they're saying, Jesus, yes, we believe you're real. We do. We believe you're the Messiah. We do. We believe all that stuff. But Jesus keeps pushing them beyond mere agreement. He's pushing for a deeper response, a whole life kind of response that, that bases who they are in a reality instead of in their own fantasy. They have a fantasy Messiah, one they invented. Jesus keeps calling them back to say, no, I'm the Messiah. You have to listen to me. You don't get to self-create your own God. But they remain hesitant, and they have through the whole story, and doesn't the story end that way? They're hesitant. It's a draw of non-commitment. However much they believe that he is their Messiah, their Christos, maybe their Lord and Savior, they're still trying to define what Messiah means for them on their own. So Jesus says, Messiah means that I die on a cross, displaying the power of God's forgiveness while looking weak and powerless to the world. That's the Messiah. And they say, mm, <laughs> I think the Messiah means that you kill the evildoers with violent force. That's, that's what the Messiah does. He, he uses actual power to get real things accomplished. That's where they're still hanging back. They remember the God who says, I am the self-revealing, proclaiming God of Exodus. I am. They're having a lot of trouble with this God who, who asks them a question, who am I? Peter, who do you say I am? Jesus asks right as chapter 8 is closing. That's the big question of the entire gospel, isn't it? Who do you say Jesus is? I've said through this whole series, far more important than where do you think you're going when you die is the question, who do you say Jesus is? And even then, 
Though Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he still cannot believe that the Messiah is going to proceed along the way of the cross. This is one of the places where Mark asks of us, the readers, he asks us to think deeply. Like Peter, do I turn away when Jesus doesn't fit into my expectations nice and neat? Do I turn to the parts of Jesus I like and then away from him when I see things I don't like? That's the question the Gospel of Mark is drawing us, readers, disciples, it's drawing us to. Like the disciples, do I truly believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior just as long as I get to define what Lord and Savior means? It's easy to believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's simple, so long as you get to define what Lord and Savior means. Then it's no problem. But if you actually believe that Jesus gets to define what Lord means and Savior means, now you have a predicament. It becomes quite a bit more difficult. I think it's very common among popular Christianity to do this kind of thing. Many think of themselves as believers, but they also desperately cling to a self-created idea of Jesus. They think of him as a nice, sort of happy-go-lucky vending machine that gives out eternal life and eternal health and eternal wealth, and all I have to do is pay the quarter of believing in John 3.16 and agreeing with it. That's Jesus. That's the personal Lord and Savior for a great swath of popular Christianity today. That's the kind that can stay tightly bound to Jesus, but when we get to the cross, nowhere to be seen. The response then to that kind of Jesus is a favorable confession of Jesus as Lord, but it's a favorable response to a false god a self-created idol that you've named Jesus Christ. It doesn't do us much good to worship false gods. Many in the Gospel of Mark respond favorably to Jesus, Jesus as the true Messiah. They do, but they abandon him by the thousands when they realize that they don't get to define Lord and Savior in their own way. You remember this with the big feeding miracles he comes in, he feeds huge crowds of people, thousands, and they're stoked. This is the Messiah. Be our king, by which they mean fight Rome with swords and military. We will take him out. And Jesus says, no, I'm not doing that. And they say, fine, we're out. They abandon him by the thousands when he's not fitting into their mold. They even abandon him by the dozen, the dozen most close to him. Leave him to hang alone. And Mark's gospel will not allow us to look quickly away from that very convicting truth. He wants us to land there. It's the emphatic point. Who do you say Jesus is? Will you really follow him? Well, now it brings us to the final section, which wraps this entire story up, I think, very completely. I've said there's a longer ending. You have that longer ending that goes verses 9 through 20. We know, most of your Bibles will say 
this longer ending is not in our earliest original manuscripts that we have. We're not sure exactly how it got tied into your canon, but when you read it, you can very quickly and easily see why the church has let us know this is an add-on ending. It doesn't read like Mark at all. It's got some very crazy things with poison and snakes and so forth, and we're, we're trying to sort of grasp onto what it is. I don't think that it's a bad thing to read at all. But we know that Mark intended to drop the pen. He dropped the mic, if you will, on verse 8. That was the end. So let's read these final eight verses. Uh, they are as unsettling as they are conclusive, okay? Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, man, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were terrified. Man, can you imagine this? you got to get into their heartbeat a little bit. It's racing right now. Everything they expected to be the case is not the case. Yeah, I mean, just imagine you're walking into the room. I mean, it's a tomb in a cut piece of rock. It smells kind of weird. There's been a body, dead body in here for a couple days. Now there's this weird guy there. An, an, an unbelievable feat of strength has happened. The stone has rolled. How is all this going on? They're shocked. They're being invited into seeing something that makes zero sense. Verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He's probably pointing to the stone there. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And then this unhappy conclusion. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. They ignored the instruction. He said, go out and tell everybody. And instead they went out, and Mark lets us know they said nothing to anybody. They were terrified. And we're all thinking, wait a minute. There's supposed to be more to the story. This isn't the end. But it is. The way Mark wants to tell the story. He ends it here to bring a kind of transformation to you and me that's very specific. He's closed it out in this way which draws you and I into the most important question of our lives. We are faced head on with what Jesus actually asks of us. And we see the various ways that people respond to this call. The scene is shadowed with darkness and pervasive gloom. There's no doubt about it. It's a dark scene, just as dark as the skies up to the ninth hour. Jesus breathes his last in utter loneliness, betrayed, abandoned, deserted, denied by his followers, the ones who swore, Peter especially, who swore he would stay with them. Mark wants us to see this picture and ask ourselves the question 
that Jesus asks you and I today, right now, who do you say Jesus is? Are you running away from him too? His own people hated him and clamored for his death. They wanted him out of the way. Mocked, beaten, and covered in their spit, Jesus has faced the most excruciating death all alone, isolated from the human race. Mark does not show us a good thief hanging next to him which helps to relieve the weight of this oppression. There are no close friends or relatives. There's no mom there to comfort Jesus. There's nobody standing by to support or watch him. Only a handful of his followers, the women that he trusted to do ministry with in Galilee, they're there. They're showing true faithfulness to a certain degree, but they stay in the safe zone. They look upon him from afar. Jesus does not give us that serene prayer at the end, which we see in Luke, Lord, I commit my spirit to you. He doesn't give he doesn't give us those victorious final words we see in John 19. It is finished. And instead of this God who comes in the beginning as a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, instead here we have that cry of dereliction, that horrific moment where he says in a bloody, tormented shout, why have you abandoned me here? This is where Mark focuses our attention. Instead of a group of people who jump for joy about this resurrection, people who would be presumably stoked on the fact that he was a raised human being, you would imagine that to be, okay, yeah, let's tell everybody about it. Instead, they run away. They're telling nobody at all. And the last word of the gospel is afraid. They were terrified. Mark leaves us hanging with a picture of evil and darkness engulfing the entire scenario, swallowing this scene up, and we don't like it. Everything inside of us, our instinct is to make it feel better somehow. Uh, I wanna make it feel better, but if we follow that instinct, which is to say something like, well, yeah, but, yeah, this is dark, but there's a, there's a happy ending, that instinct, makes us want to add some happier words or some sentimental images that sort of make us warm and cozy again. If we do that, we miss the power of this gospel. Mark is driving us to face a brutal truth. Our own blindness and our own sin are spilling over in an outrage against God's Son. We're outraged by Jesus. Like the disciples, we despise what he calls us to become weak, vulnerable, self-giving. We long to be with him, but we want that to happen on our own terms. Often when we realize that it is only on his terms that we can enter into his life, we run away in fear, trembling, we return to what we know is best, whatever that is, because it's just easier. It's more difficult because Jesus asks too much. There's a guy named Ched Myers who's written a lot on Mark's gospel, a great book called Binding the Strong Man. 
And he makes a very clarifying observation, which I've included on the front of your bulletin. I've already stated it briefly. The power of Mark's gospel lies not ultimately in what it tells disciples or readers, but in what it asks of them. That is the thrust. That is the strength of this gospel we've studied for well over a year. Mark calls us to a question. Jesus, through Mark, is asking something of you. Jesus thinks quite differently than we do. Throughout the story, he seems to be drawing us into a question more than he is laying down a crystal clear bit of information. Haven't we felt that through the whole thing? It's so terse. Almost every paragraph, you're like, gosh, there's got to be more detail than that. It's, everything moves so quickly. It's so tight. But it's not the information delivery that we're looking for. It's the question, are you willing to follow me for real? Over and over again, he says this, right up to verse 16, 7, which we just read. Remember, in the very first opening scene, chapter 1, verse 17, we see Jesus giving this commencement speech, the beginning speech for the mission he's going to launch into. And the key words there are, follow me. It's a command, I think, but it's just as much an invitation. Are you willing to follow me? In Mark 8, the very middle, that's the whole first end, the first half of the story, it ends with this epilogue. And that becomes an interrogation for you and I when we read it in Mark chapter 8. He's asking us the same question he asks of Peter and the rest of the people. You've watched me teach. You've seen my miracles and symbolic actions. Do you not yet understand me? Right there, and that's that mark and hinge, if you will, the, the turning point of the story is right in that question. This is thematic. It's right there in the dead center of the story where Mark makes the most daring move, which I've already alluded to in this sermon. He moves Exodus 3.14's tradition of God, the self-revealer, I am, into an expression now through the incarnation of God, Jesus, where he doesn't say, I am, but instead, who am I? He turns that proclamation into a question. The first is about, here's what you need to know. I am God. But now Jesus says, here's what you need to be asking of yourself. Who am I? And then finally here in 16 verse 7, which we just read, he re-ups on that original invitation when he says, he's going before you into Galilee. The inherent or the embedded question is, are you going to Galilee too? You know where he's at. He's right where he said he was going to be. Anybody who hears these women say that's where he went is faced with a question. Will you go up and join him? Will you follow him? Or are you going to keep on hiding from him? and hiding from the consequences of being close to him. We might say, well, I'll go to Galilee. I'll be happy to follow him, but I need a clear road map. I need something that's nice and crystal for me. Uh, I'm not about to sign on with Jesus unless I have a solid and guaranteed game plan that details what I'm going to get in return and exactly what it's going to cost me. So I'm willing, but I need some of that stuff first. 
How can I receive the benefits of following Jesus while retaining the other benefits that I've learned to glean from life? Can I kind of get both? That's really the question that we're all struggling with, isn't it? Can I be with Jesus in a meaningful way while also continuing to pursue myself? That's the golden goose we all want to find. Can I have a meaningful relationship with Jesus while I also pursue myself? And I think many of us will spend our entire lives believing that can happen and will devise really interesting ways that we think we're making that happen. The Gospel of Mark says that's not happening. <laughs> and you're, you're wrong if you think that it is. You're just hiding like the rest of the disciples. I remember that story, you might as well, from chapter 11. The chief priests and religious law experts, they're coming and they're challenging Jesus. On whose authority are you doing this stuff? Whose authority? How do you get to say what you're saying and do what you're doing? This can't be good. Who do you think you are? That's their question. Jesus didn't really answer them the way that he want, they wanted, did he? He answers them with a question. He, he sees in them that they are overconfident knowers. They already know what they need. They know what's right. They know how stuff works. His goal was to help them see that they didn't really care about whose authority Jesus was working under, even though that was their question. Why? Because they saw themselves as the ultimate authority. They weren't saying, Jesus, we'd like to know who your authority really comes from. Instead, they were saying with that question, we're the ones in charge. Who do you think you are? You see? And Jesus knew they were thinking that, so he asks a question to draw them to where they really stood. And then they say what to him? Uh, uh, we don't know. They say, we don't, we don't know how to answer that question, because if they answered the question Jesus asked them, they would be shown for where they were really at. So they don't want that to happen, so they say, we don't know. We don't know how to answer that. That's too weird. We can't answer that. And Jesus says, okay, then I can't answer your question either. It's funny. Judas had the same problem, didn't he? And it was the same problem as the rich young ruler. I want to be part of your kingdom. Is it cool if I join you on my terms, though? My terms are simple. They really are. I trust you for my future, and I trust me for my day-to-day. -day. It's a real basic dichotomy. Jesus, you can be in charge of heaven, and I'll be in charge of earth. That's simple, isn't it? Can we agree to that? I like this better because it allows me to truly love you for what you will give me but I don't have to follow you and become somebody different at all. Becoming different is difficult. And I've kind of got a lot going on right now. I don't need more difficulty in my life. I mean, maybe later when I get older, but right now, let me do this, you do the heaven thing. At this point, we can guess that the Jesus of Mark would probably not answer that question. <laughs> I don't think he would say, uh, here's an answer to your question. Instead, I think he would fire a few questions back at us to help us see where we really are. So he might ask, do you want to be the king? Oh, no, 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 not of course not, Jesus. Only you are the sovereign and holy Lord. I'm just wanting you to follow my lead rather than me following yours. It's a simple tweak. 
Oh, okay, so you want to direct me. Oh, no, 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 no. Of course not, Jesus. You're my rod and my staff, and you lead me to cool waters of pleasure and tranquility. You can direct my life. I love it. Okay, so will you do what I'm asking you to do? Absolutely, as long as I get to approve of what you're asking. And I think at that point, Jesus simply smiles and turns away and walks away. We could not actually respond to him, and so he cannot either. Just like he did in chapter 11 with those other ones playing the same game. Mark, more than any other gospel writer, in my view, he drives us to the heart of real discipleship. Should we choose to respond positively to Jesus with real trust in him, life is going to become insanely different than it has been for us. It will change. And if this is just too much for us, if we can't respond to that, then neither can he. The Jesus of Mark provides very few answers, especially if we're asking the wrong questions. But as a questioner himself, Jesus compels us to reveal where we are really, truly at. If we wish to respond wisely to him, the only thing he offers us in return is companionship and a cross. It's helpful to recognize that Jesus is the best discipler ever. He's the best guy to do discipleship with. You're never going to get a better one than Jesus. And we see him always trying to draw out of people. He's always trying to draw people out of that posture of overconfident knower or know-it-all and into the posture of a humble learner. And I've said many times, learner, matethes in the Greek. That's how we translate into disciple. It means learner. He's always drawing people into a life of learning with him to become seekers of the kingdom. And his promise is this, if you choose to seek me, you will find me. You seek the kingdom of God and it will be yours. It does happen that way, but you have to earnestly want it. You're not trying to find a little bit to fit into your already good life. True seeking is letting yourself be open to God's teaching. If you seek the kingdom, you'll find it. But if you keep thinking you already know the true kingdom, and that now you just need to include a little bit of Jesus and some church stuff to sort of get the extra benefits of life that you would like, especially the whole where do I go when I die question, I want to shore that up. I just want to add a little bit in. That means you're actually seeking the kingdom of you, not the kingdom of God. It sounds more like Tom Cruise or Richard Gere would help you on that pursuit than Jesus the Nazarene. To follow me, Jesus says, you follow me. And everything I do, Jesus says, is about dying to myself, letting go of my rights, letting go of my preferences and my securities, letting go of all that I want and instead becoming alive with the indestructible life of God. I let go of self to find true life. I die to self so that I might live. I think that right there is the hardest part for us to swallow. Trusting. <laughs> 
really, really, really deep down trusting that God's not jacking around with us when he says you're going to experience an indestructible life with me. We love that idea, but we still write bucket lists because we still think we only have a few more years to experience the good stuff. Resurrection is very difficult for us to believe. These ladies that Mark is emphasizing at the end are very encouraging to us. They seem to be the closest ones in the story to actually getting it, to seeing Jesus for who he really is. But they obviously never believed truly that his life was indestructible. They're not going down and spending money on embalming spices because they believe he's not dead, right? They don't go down to the tomb ready to help prepare his body because they believe it's going to be raised. They're not shocked at his resurrection because they expected his resurrection. They're shocked and terrified because they never believed it was going to happen. Neither did the rest of the disciples. They've run. They give us a really good thing to look at. We all love to believe in the resurrection, but our lives sometimes are not resurrection lives. They're not filled with the courage and faith and hope and love of an indestructible life. Instead, they reflect more of the fears of losing things that are valuable in this world. These ladies were so encouraging, and yet they were still terrified. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for the Jesus, the Nazarene. He has risen. He's gone on ahead of you. Don't be alarmed, but trembling and bewildered, confused, the woman went out, and they didn't say anything to anybody because they were terrified. They were afraid. The end. It's a draw. It's a draw of non-commitment. And the question for us is, where are we in this scene? Is this the end of the gospel? Or is this the beginning of the gospel? Is this just the end of that beginning story? But it really is just the starting point of the gospel. You and I have seen many people attempt to prove the resurrection. Apologists, great pastors and speakers, we've seen all this stuff. Archaeologists. Mark doesn't offer any proof to us, does he? He's not interested in demonstrating that it really did come to pass. Nobody actually sees Jesus for real in the Gospel of Mark post-resurrection. All we hear is that he went up somewhere else. There are no 500 witnesses that Mark talks about. There's no Thomases sticking their hands into the cut on his side. There's no final farewells. There's nothing. Did Jesus actually end up appearing to these disciples? Mark simply doesn't tell us. The way Mark sees things, the resurrection is not the final answer. Instead, it's the final question. It's not the end of the gospel. It's only the end of this story about Jesus that begins the good news, the euangelion, the gospel that is now contained in you and me. And our willingness to follow Jesus and to live like him to become the only genuine witnesses to the resurrection. Will you accept that call? Will you go with Jesus up to Galilee, so to speak? 
Now that you know that he has been raised from the dead, you know that he lives in an indestructible life and invites you to share in it. Will you answer his call to become a learner and a disciple of his and joyfully say yes when he asks of you? Will you follow me? Will you bear a cross? Will you give up the way of life that seeks to improve only yourself? And instead, will you enter a way of life that puts self so low that Jesus and his gospel can be raised high? Will you be co-crucified with me so that you too can come and die and find that you may truly live? How will you respond to Jesus? The resurrection is not an answer for Mark, but it's the final question. Will we, as a community, become gospelers, good newsers in this world? Is that how we will live? We have been called to gospel. Think of it verbally. We have been called as a community to gospel in Portland, Oregon, right now, today. I want to invite you to join me. I want to live this way more than anything else in my life. I don't care about anything as much as I care about gospeling. I speak on behalf of the leaders and elders and pastors and community. Will you join this community to become a gospeling community who looks at the heartbeat of Jesus and says, we want that kind of love. We don't have it inherently, but he will give it to us. We want to love and trust the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we want to love our neighbor as ourself. We're going to gospel in this town. We're going to own it. We will suffer with one another, but that's okay because we get to live forever just like Jesus did. The grave has no threat to us. Oh, death, where is your sting? I say let's walk. Let's walk with Jesus on his way of life all the way to the cross, never abandoning Jesus to the cross alone like we see happening here, but instead dying there with him. This resurrection, as Mark has told it, moves us back to the main question that has gone through the entire past however many weeks we've been looking at this. Who do you say Jesus is, really? And will you follow him? Pray with me. Father, it is an amazing thing to know that you are present with us always. You direct our path. You are a light in our world. You speak to us through your word and through one another. We are not alone. We are not fumbling around trying to figure it out. You are such a bright light, Jesus, that sometimes when we look at you, it's too much and we turn away. It's just too crazy. And we resonate with Peter and the rest of the disciples the 5,000, everybody who kind of walked away from you because your invitation was so profoundly difficult. And yet, you rose again. And then in that one fell swoop, you show us that your yoke is actually light. That much of what we fear is not based in reality. It's just based in a deception. And now you've raised and revealed the great truth about life with you. 
Jesus, would you ratchet that into the deepest place of our being so that we could live your gospel. We could live it and sink it and feel it and breathe it every day of our lives, trusting in you, regarding you as king and not trying to usurp your throne. Thanks for being so kind to us. We love you. We trust you with all of our lives and it has been a great run this past year plus in the Gospel of Mark. Thanks for every moment we've got to share through it. Amen.